Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. So, hey, everybody, welcome back to Business Black Belts. I am really excited today to have Eric Klein, who is the COO and one of the co-founders of Cloudonix. Eric, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. How are you doing, Miles? Doing well. Um, so first question, for anyone who doesn't know who Eric Klein is or doesn't know Cloudonix, maybe you could just introduce yourself uh, and your company. Okay. Um, Eric Klein, I've been in the telecom or datacom industry now for, what do we figure, we're, we're 30, 31 years now. Uh, been involved in a lot of different projects, mostly on the carrier side. Uh, I'm an author. I put out a couple of book chapters on technical books, including uh, in the cybersecurity book, I wrote the chapter on telecom security. Mm-hmm. And in my spare time, which I have much less of than I like, uh, I'm a science fiction author. Very cool. So it's an eclectic background, authoring both uh, personal interests and professionally. Um, and how did it get started for you? Did did you kind of fall into the industry? Did you know you wanted to be in tech? Like what what was the journey from... You know, I usually think about from when you graduated from college or something, how did you get to where you are? Okay. I'm going to actually take one step prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my undergrad in a pre-med program, mm-hmm. thinking that I wanted to go to be a doctor and realized that wasn't where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went through the one of those ex- existential kind of decisions. What do I want to do with my life? And I realized at that point, the two things I enjoyed most was computers and theater. So I literally sat down and decided theater people do not eat as well or as often as computer people. And that's kind of how I got into technology. And what was the first role? So when you made that decision, how did you then get into the industry? Um, I actually started with a part-time job working at a insurance company, um, kind of helping them convert from a manual system to a new automated system. So part of that was debugging COBOL code which was amusing because it wasn't until the following semester that I actually took my first COBOL course. Um, So I started that and started working with that and got very deep into it. Uh, Straight out of university, I went and worked for what used to be known as EDS, Mm -hmm. and uh, which is now part of Hewlett Packard as Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And they had a very unusual philosophy. Go into a company, sign a contract, and transfer all of the technical employees to work for EDS. So if you have an in-house IT department, uh, developers, whatever, they suddenly become EDS employees overnight. But it means that every time you are now officially sitting at the customer's location. So every time you got up from your desk, you had to put on the jacket and make sure the tie was good because you had to look presentable because you're at the customer. The fact that that's your everyday job didn't matter. So it was a kind of interesting time, and I got involved with local area networking and help desk stuff and went from there, from local networks to wide area networks to carrier networks, and that kind of stuck. Very cool. And now, what was the journey of going from working on the infrastructure to becoming a service provider? Obviously, you helped found a company that's now on the other side of that. It's been a long process between that. Um, I worked for the carrier side. I worked for what used to be MCI just before it became WorldCom. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're now part of Verizon. And 
went through that, started selling technical services based on my networking experience. Mm -hmm. So I came in and the funny thing is I actually went into a job fair, handed my uh, resume over to the manager who was at the job fair, told them what I was doing about networking and designing local and wide area networks and implementing them. And he's like, well, we don't really have much need for you. Why don't you talk to our implementation uh, sister company? Like, okay. So I gave them my resume also. Three days later, I get a phone call to come in and interview with the guy who said, we don't use you. He ended up hiring me and was my boss for three years before he got transferred to another division. So it was a unusual way of, of kind of starting the relationship. Mm-hmm. But it started out with how do you want to use the network and then working backwards. So it was a lot of kind of tongue in cheek kind of yeah. solutions of how do I make the network work and how do I bring things out from there. Mm-hmm. And that kind of got me into carrier. Then I went from carriers to selling uh, hardware and software to carriers, went back into carrier services for a while, uh, did a cellular operator in Israel and um, moved from there into consulting. Mm-hmm. So we were designing uh, phone systems and phone networks for companies in multiple countries. Uh, I did one uh, company called Click Software, which is now part of um, Salesforce. Mm-hmm. And I was responsible for their network um, in 14 locations in eight countries. Mm-hmm. So it got in, got very involved with what they were doing. And while we were doing that, uh, the consulting company kept getting asked to do development work on providing voice services for mobile apps. And uh, this didn't work well. There was a lot of problems with voice over IP and mobile because the technology is not designed for it. Mm -hmm. So after the third one asked us to do this, we said, okay, it's time to turn this into a product. And that became a spinoff that is now Cloudonix. Very cool. And and so is, is that normally the, if you were giving entrepreneurial advice to someone who wanted to found a tech company, is that normally the best way to do it, to look for this recurring issue that you say, hey, this could be a product? Because it seems like people fail if they just say, like Boston Consulting Group looks at the VoIP net, uh, market and says, we're going to start a new one with based off, you know, book knowledge. Yes, finding the pain point where, where people are really hemorrhaging or bleeding money is the best way to start up um, a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved, uh, Israel was very well known for having great technology companies, mm-hmm. but 90% of them were, we built this really great solution, now let's go look for a problem. Mm-hmm. And this is where companies fail. Mm-hmm. The, the two things that I've, I've noticed um, in startup world is either you're building a solution without understanding the problem or why somebody would use it, or you're building for a particular exit. And when that doesn't happen, the company goes out of business. Hmm. So I've seen companies build, oh, Cisco's going to buy us out. So they go and they make their documentation Cisco style. They do their boxes Cisco blue. They do cards to fit into Cisco boxes. Cisco buys their competitor. And four months later, the company is uh, completely sold for 20 cents on the dollar. And this happens all too often. Um, To to kind of digress for a second, uh, we did an accelerator out of New York City called uh, Entrepreneur Roundtable Accelerator, ERA, back in 2019. And one of the mentors sat us down and said, do you guys know what canned dog food is? Hmm. Okay. 
not dry, but canned. He's like, yeah, they put garlic in canned dog food. Why? Does it taste good to the human or something? Or the human would think it tastes good? That buys that, it? That's close. Yeah. We, we went through the basic principle of it's a preservative. It, the dog will like the flavor and dogs will eat trash that is rotten. Um, went through a whole long list of possibilities. And in the end of the day, the explanation was the people who buy dog foods, the cohort of people who do this, are women 15 to 35 year olds who open the can of dog food smell the dog food, which to be honest, would probably smell disgusting without the garlic. And it's like, Ooh, this smells like table scraps. So I'm going to buy it again. I feel good about giving it to my dog. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what we realized is most technical startups start by targeting the developer. Mm -hmm. What tool will the developer want to use or how will they use it? Forgetting the developer has zero say in the purchase. I mean, the dog doesn't get to ask for the dog food. Uh, at most, it'll kind of push it around and not eat it. But for the most part, they have, they're not involved with the decision. Mm-hmm. So that night, I'm walking with my co-founder, Nier. And we're walking through Times Square back to our hotel. And I stop him and I say, Nier, we're not selling dog food. He's like, what do you mean? Like, we're selling breakfast cereal. Like, what? Kids' breakfast cereal... They see it on, they see it advertised on TV. What's the first thing they do? Mommy, I want it. Mm-hmm. What do they do for the next thousand times? Mommy, I'm going to die if I don't get it. I want it. I need it. I have to have it. Until eventually mommy walks into the supermarket, picks up a box and goes, well, it's no worse than what they're eating now. Sure, let's try a box and see if they'll eat it and keep, keep quiet for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. At which point we realized that when you're doing this kind of sale, you have to make your... ROI, your sales material, your product features fit two different directions. Because unlike the dog's food example, the kid has a say in the the purchase. So a developer has no budget authority to purchase it, but they can request it or at least say, yeah, this is okay. I'm willing to work with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the VP, VP sales, technology, whoever it is who's got the budget has to look and go, okay, this is worth taking money off of something else and putting it into So if you don't understand the balance between these two different requirement sets, you're bound to fail. Mm -hmm. And we literally went in that day and flipped our our solution story from a tagline that was by developers for developers to we are a sales enablement tool getting you faster time to revenue. Mm -hmm. And the difference in our sales was crazy. Since the start of COVID, when we kind of put all of this out, We've had an 8,000% increase in number of customers in 24 months with a corresponding increase in revenue. And just by flipping the story around to who we're targeting and why we're targeting them, completely turned the company around. When you're doing it by, for developers, by developers, you're targeting the CTO, the VPR&D, at which point we ran into, I'll call it the tech hubris. Mm-hmm. We can build this. Why do I want to spend my budget on having you do it? Why don't I just have one of my guys or hire a guy to do it for me? Mm-hmm. When I come in and it's the sales department's budget, the tech guy goes, oh, you're paying for it? Sure, we'll be happy to support it. It's one more thing that gives us justification for existing. It's not my money. I'm happy to do it. Mm-hmm. So that kind of flip in how you think of things made all of the difference in our go-to-market and our, our process. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm so curious because when you go do something like we guys are doing, there's a lot of people and obviously 
the lack of venture uh, funding, at least on the outlook that people are afraid of, is scaring companies that aren't making money in the tech space. What's the hardest part? Is it building the product? Is it servicing the product? Is it selling or marketing the product? Like, where have you seen the biggest bottleneck, and maybe how have you overcome that bottleneck? Realistically, it's it comes down to a combination of the MVP and who's going to buy it. Mm-hmm. You need to go out and find out, talk to people who are feeling the pain, and what is the biggest pain point right now that I can fix for you, mm-hmm. so you can start getting revenue fast. That's how you're going to bootstrap, basically. Okay, so you need to get in and start showing revenue because these days, especially unless you're doing a B2C um, mobile app or web page or something, um, if you're doing B2B, you have to go out and show real traction with paying enterprises or SMB customers. Okay, if you're doing a mobile app or something like that, like Candy Crush, they want to know how many people have downloaded it. But once you're actually going out there and building a business on the B2B model, they actually want to see paying customers. Freebies don't count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have de- definitely uh, have thought about that question a lot. A customer mentioned to me of what's your most pressing business problem to ask the customer. If you can't link to what they say, even if you're solving something that is in theory a problem, if it's not a pressing problem, you're in trouble. And to your point, the only way you really get inertia is you got to have paying customers, like exactly. whether it's with investors but, or other customers. Yeah. Yes. But that pain point, mm-hmm. if they do not know they have it, mm-hmm. walk away. Yeah. One of the startups I was with, um, Humbug Telecom, mm-hmm. we were doing telecom fraud prevention, which is what happened, what led to that book chapter. Mm-hmm. And we spent 18 months educating the market that this was a problem because nobody even knew that, oh yeah, your on-premise telephone system can get hacked and in 24 to 48 hours, you can get nailed for $25,000 in fraud and have no way of getting that money back. And they'll do it over a weekend and then the following weekend, they'll hit the people in the office next door and nobody talked about it. And when you're spending all of your sales and marketing budget on educating the market that there's a problem, you're not going to go anywhere. If it's a new problem and it's not obvious, like uh, Steve Jobs came out with what wasn't the first smartphone, but it was the first relatable smartphone. Mm-hmm. Everybody got it because they could see it and they could see how it worked. But if it's not that obvious, you need to go out and, and start while you're designing the MVP three, six, ten months out, start doing the blog post, start doing the education before the product goes live. Otherwise, all of your budget is going to go to education. None of it's going to actually close deals. Yeah. And you bring up a great point because if you think about there, like you mentioned the parenting example, there's certain persistent things that the market wants. Like I want my kids to be healthy or I want to save money. But the problem is if you're pitching something that saves them 1% over the way they do it today, which is 1% of their budget, it's just not worth the effort. So you might not be wrong. They might not even disagree with you that, uh, you can save them money. It's just not enough money to care. So I found, like you said, you either have to have a huge value driver or you have to be, if you don't have a huge value driver and you're kind of similar to what you're competing with, you just have to be selling into someone that already wants that thing. Like the you know, Azure and Google Cloud and Amazon, they're all kind of similar, but they don't have to prove they're better because it's just a supply and demand thing of lots of people want it. Whereas if you're doing like what you guys do, it's been around a while. You've got to be really 
smart in the distribution like you have been because going to that IT guy going, you know, we can save you 4% on your VoIP or whatever, like they've kind of, that road has been worn out. Yes. Even if your thing's that, that, way better. Yeah. That, that, that's been a, a race to the bottom in too many ways. So you need to show some legitimate ROI, some value that isn't just, I save you money. Mm-hmm. So for us, we, we're not, we're not technically voice over IP. I mean, it's part of one of the features. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're more usually compared to like the Twilio's of the world because we're Mm -hmm. API based communication. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll get back to that in a second because our go to market is very different than most. We got very lucky that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're going in, you have to show what's better, what's, what's useful. And for us, we come in and we say, okay, you have a customer who's using your service. Mm -hmm. You have a prospect who's using your service. And if they're going to call up and want to make a purchase and you have them fill in a form for a callback, you wait an hour, you're 20% less likely to close the deal. Mm-hmm. For every hour that you wait beyond that, you lose another 5% chance. So if you call them back the following day, you're the done. likelihood is they bought it from somebody else. They forgot why they wanted to talk to you or you catch them at a bad time. They're in the bathroom, they're commuting, they're in a meeting or whatever because your schedule and theirs don't match. So our answer was get the person talking to a sales agent immediately. Mm-hmm. Don't fill in a form, connect them to the agent with as much context as you can. Oh, so you clicked on the Nike page for the uh, black high tops. What would you like to know? Mm-hmm. And you can save the time because the other half of that, where it's talking ROI, when somebody calls into a call center and they sit in a queue, you can sit for an hour in the queue and it'll cost the company about two cents. Mm-hmm. If you actually talk to an agent, it's a dollar a minute on average. Mm-hmm. So if we can come in and we can save 30 seconds to three minutes on what I jokingly refer to as the Spanish Inquisition, who are you and why are you bothering me? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's $1 to $3 per agent per call. So if I have a 100-person call center, each agent does six calls an hour, I've just saved you $600 minimum on that per day per shift mm-hmm. so it adds up to okay eight hours a day six hundred dollars per hour that adds up to a return on investment and the covering of the cost that's amazing that people can go wow we this is going to be free to us and we're going to be making money within six weeks mm-hmm. and that kind of roi really makes sense because it's we're making your agents more efficient mm-hmm. so if i can save three minutes per call they're not doing six calls. They're now doing eight calls mm-hmm. and it, it adds up. So you now need less agents to do more service. So once you start putting that kind of math in and put in the context, okay. Do you have a credit card or a banking app on your phone? Yeah. Have you ever looked at a statement and said, wait, I don't recognize that, that company name. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's usually a doing business as kind of relationship, but you never know. You mm-hmm. don't know if it's fraud. So yep. you pick up the app, you click on the little button, and it, to call us, it goes out to the toll-free number. Since you're in the U.S., it says press 1 for English. Please enter your 16-digit account number. Mm-hmm. Please choose a department. And the first thing somebody says is, hi, I'm Eric. Can I have your account number, please? It's like, my app had it. I just entered it. Why are you asking me it again? Mm-hmm. Now, imagine the experience where you do the same thing and you click on it and they go, hi, Miles. I see that you clicked on item 17. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. Okay, that saves an incredible amount of 
time because the context is still there. It went from an app that knows who you are, is pre-authenticated, knows that you unlock the phone with a fingerprint, do your face scan or whatever else. So they know it's really you. It's something you have and it's something that you are. So they know that it's you. They don't have to worry about security questions. And they go, oh, this is what you clicked. I know why you're calling. Now, how can I help? Mm-hmm. Saves a whole lot of time and effort. And in the end, the net promoter score goes great. Because if you do that at a credit card or an insurance company, and they go, oh, yeah, I see that you called about this. How can I help? You're going to tell all of your friends I had this absolutely amazing experience, whereas normally it would have been an hour's worth of, of annoyance. Mm-hmm. At which point I've now got a free referral to who knows how many new customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the kind of experience that you have to do because this is so much more than what people are used to having. Mm-hmm. Now, where do you see, if you kind of look on the horizon of where where you and the company are going, it feels like the application of this is you could end up being a very large company pretty quickly at the growth rate you're moving. Is that kind of how it feels to you guys? That's Yeah, that, that's kind of how it feels and kind of the direction we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, we just recently got involved in the Metaverse Standards uh, Forum. Um, which is the kind of ready player one metaverse, not the NFT version of metaverse. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to make sure that as things go from single channel to omni channel to metaverse channels, all of this kind of communications is done properly. So it gives us a chance to grow. Mm -hmm. Um, If we had to, we we would love to to be big enough to go out and and get enough of the pie to go IPO and do things. That's every startup stream. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, what we're doing, we looked at our market compared all of the in-app communications, it's 24 trillion voice calls happen between WeChat, WhatsApp, FaceTime, uh, all of these different basic tools. We're like, that's a $30 billion market that nobody's touching right now. And it grows 20% annually. Yeah, getting 10 or 20% of that will make us a fairly decent sized company. Mm-hmm. So this, this is a kind of where we're going and we're building to it slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also currently looking for a seed round to kind of accelerate that. So it puts us in a very unusual place when we talk to people. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully um, this podcast gives a little bit of exposure to some of the great stuff you guys are doing, because it sounds like any investor would be excited about those types of uh, growth rates. I hope so. Um, yeah. It, it's at the point where we're, we're almost ready to say, never mind the seed, we're just going to go to A, mm-hmm. um, which would be a great place to be. Mm-hmm. Um One of the things I mentioned before is our go-to-market is a little different than your typical one for a SaaS company. Mm -hmm. Um, 80% of our business is through ISV partners who bring it in and the end customer may never even know we exist. Mm -hmm. So we've had companies come on and they're like, oh, wow, you can solve us. Um, Call analytics companies, for example. We've got a number of them that are doing that. So instead of having to go out and buy a thousand phone numbers and every time an advert comes up on uh, the internet or on your mobile phone, you click it, it's a special number so they can track it. They can do that tracking from us over the data network. And then we can give them statistics of how long the call lasted. Um, here's the call recording to give to your customer, all sorts of other uh, metrics that they wouldn't otherwise get. So after we after they come on board and they use the first two or three of their customers, they go, oh, I'm going to onboard all of my customers. So we've had them come in and it's 70 customers get onboarded in in two months uh, from their entire portfolio. So we've got one company that's got 1,500 companies that they're onboarding over the next six months just because they can't convert faster. And the weirdest part of this is, uh, which is great for us, 
our biggest competitor in this particular kind of space, as far as uh, investors or other people are concerned, uh, just became one of our new ISV partners who's bringing business to us to help close deals. Mm -hmm. So now we are working with Twilio to help make things better and close deals that they were having technical problems on that last like five to 15 percent. So they're doing the bulk of the work and we're just closing that little bit of gap. And it is just an amazing place to be. Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. I feel like where you guys are going, the scale of even individual deals like that uh, and the way that you've carved out a marketing strategy, it's definitely, uh, you can definitely see the seeds of kind of like a country singer in one region of the country starting to get famous and everyone knows they're going to be more famous. Uh, feels like you guys are well on your way to that. Uh, so my final question for you is if anyone wanted to reach out to you to look at investing, to look at partnering with you, to use the product. Is LinkedIn an okay way to reach you? Or how do you normally take those kind of requests? Um, about half and half. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn so and, and get contacted about that all the time. Uh, all sorts of different things. Uh, otherwise, it would be just straight email. Uh, eric at cloudonics.io. Yeah, perfect. Well, Eric, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming and share the story. I think I'm, I'm excited for this to be a little... Uh, timestamp in your journey, which hopefully leads you far beyond our little grassroots uh, podcast. We're excited to keep following the progress and we'll certainly be rooting for you guys. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks. Thanks.